Hello, and thank you for listening to episode 94 of 60 Minutes With. I'm Dave, and this is another one of our interview shows. And in this one, I get to chat with editor, director, writer, producer, actor, cinematographer, and all-round great guy, Rob Grant. Now, if you've got any interest in movies and or filmmaking, and the very fact that you listen to us, I presume you have, then you are in for an absolute treat with this episode. So please sit back, relax, get comfortable as I spend some time chatting with Rob Grant. Right, first of all, Rob, obviously, thanks for spending some time uh, chatting with me today. And after what you've just told me off air, I don't know if you want to let the listeners in on that. Um, <laughs> it, even more of a thank you for taking the time today for having a chat with me. No problem. Yeah, no, I uh, just came back from getting x-rays done on my uh, chest and lungs because I, I took a hard hit in hockey and uh, I've been coughing up a little bit of blood. So they just want to see what's going on in there. <laughs> <laughs> Canada, yeah. eh? Canada, you mad Canadians. I feel like that's the cliche. Yeah, I'm the walking cliche over here. That's for sure. <laughs> well, we. I was lucky enough um, to watch your latest movie, Fake Blood, over at Grimfest uh, just a few weeks ago. And again, you know, I was, I was lucky enough to meet you. And and you signed my Fake Blood poster. So once again, thank you for signing that. I'm uh, no problem. I'm just waiting to get that framed and up on my wall here. <laughs> well, that's, um, that's, thanks for the support. Oh no, and it's a it's it's a really good film. Um, and it's something, of course, that we're going to chat about. But there's so much that leads to Fake Blood that you know I want to get into with you. Um, sure. Because the way that Fake Blood begins, it, you know, it talks about your early life and, and making movies. So if you want to tell the listeners, you know, um, how you got into movies and specifically movie making as well. Um, yeah, I mean, where to start? Um, I mean, what first got the bug for me was I think I was around seven years old. My dad brought home. Uh, one of those old shoulder mount, shoulder VHS camcorders. Oh yeah, yeah. From from work, um, and he's like, "I just got this for the weekend, so you guys, if you want to take a look at it and stuff." And um, me and my cousin, who was the, he's the same age, uh, basically just started mucking around with it on the weekend. And the first ever thing that I shot, actually, uh, I remember was um, trying to re remake the scene from The Fugitive with Harrison Ford. <laughs> where he's at the at the tube at the dam saying I didn't kill my wife and then and then, and Tommy Lee Jones says I don't care and then they, he jumps off and we shot that using little figurines in the bathtub as the <laughs> as the dam and so I, I I think if I recall as soon as that was as soon as we did that and got to watch that on the TV afterwards I was I was hooked I mean that was it for me um, it was must have been I don't know how old what grade are you in at, in, at age seven I can't even remember now. Oh, seven, you'd be in 12th grade? No, no, no. second. Yeah, second grade. Cause, yeah, because you start at five, so it'd be second grade. Yeah, yeah, something like that. And then I, because the, the only other thing I can remember from knowing so young is in my grade elementary school graduation speech, I said I was going to try and be the next Steven Spielberg. And they all laughed. And I remember, and I remember that, and I was like, you guys, I'll show you. But. <laughs> Haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, it. That was, it was the, a very young age. <laughs> when you get when you get a video camera, I mean, I remember when I was five and my dad got a Super Eight um, cine camera, 
And it was just like this whole world opens up. It's just, you know, then, and you see magic on the screen, don't you? You know, it doesn't matter what it is, like you were saying with the little figures jumping into the bath. It doesn't matter what yeah. it is. The, the stuff you can create is just absolutely magical. Um, yeah. And it sticks with I you, doesn't big... it? It just does stick with you all the way through. Yeah, yeah. Well, I got a big regret that I was I was born after the, the Super 8 and film things. Because they're part of me, because I shoot a lot of 35 mil film now, just the stills. And there was something even more special about that that you didn't know what you got until you got it developed. And I feel like I'm until I shot my first 16 millimeter movie, I, that was something that I was really missing. And I think it's something kind of something that we're still missing because you, I feel like I take maybe less care when I'm shooting something now because it's like oh you can see it look look at it right away. <laughs> it's dispensable. It is, yeah, and there's that whole thing as well. Well, it, it's not as expensive if you need to record another take or anything. It's you know, back in the in the film days, it's you yeah. know, if you've got a roll of eight millimeter, it's oh my god, I've only got like three minutes. Yeah, <laughs> I've got to exactly. make these three minutes count. Yeah, we got it easy now. <laughs> it feels like anyway. And you made a lot of early stuff like involving skateboards and um, stuff that I used to <laughs> film in as well. This is what I love about your movies as well, because you combine the humor and you combine like the horror and the blood. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, just a couple of hours ago, I recently rewatched Mon Ami, which we'll get oh. into again. Um, <laughs> uh, but like the early stuff that you did, how did how did uh, like you and the was it like friends, family you used to get this bunch of people together and film all the skateboarding stuff and the and, you know the short movie stuff? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, once I hit high school, you know, um, uh, we, I stopped kind of shooting these little skits and stuff and uh, little horror bits that's how I used to do it in elementary school with my neighbor and my cousin. And then as soon as we went to high school and things started, people started separating a little bit. It just turned into, uh, I live in North van in Vancouver here where it's right next to the mountains, which is kind of like the birth of free ride mountain biking. This area here, we got a lot of pro mountain bikers out here and that was kind of the birth of where that all started. So we'd go in the woods and just film us taking our bikes down all the trails and stuff like that. And then that kind of led into filming snowboarding and then filming, skateboarding and uh eventually i just realized i was like oh i need to start putting some of this stuff together and so i convinced my dad to get me a program i think was called movie magic pro or something it wasn't even like a final cut or a premiere or any of those <laughs> it was it was basically like a pre-iMovie and uh, I, I remember i remember well actually prior to that when i used to do the fugitive stuff it was vhs to vhs just hit and record and stop oh god so, yeah okay. <laughs> Uh, and so I remember it was, and I remember even having, if I wanted to put music to it, I would have to input into the audio track, mm -hmm. the second audio track, uh, <laughs> a song from a cassette player and stuff. So it was very early just trying to use whatever resources I had available to make these things work. And then, yeah, as soon as I got that editing software, that kind of opened the doors to try and mimic some of the video skate videos that I watched, like uh, the CKY, like the Bam Margera movies and stuff like that. And that kind of got us into filming more skits and being a little more goofy and stuff. I feel like I feel like I just watched a documentary on Spike Jones the other day. Actually, it was a, actually it was a Vice guide. It was called Epically Later on Spike Jones, I think. Uh huh. And uh, I, I, there's something really connected to that because I feel like he had a very similar upbringing. He started off as a photographer for I think Big Brother magazine, and, or sorry, Brother magazine, which was this really goofy skateboard company which is where he met the guys from jackass and it kind of he just built his way from there and then 
you know, that led to being John or music videos and then being John Malkovich one day. But I, I connected really strong with that because I feel like I had very similar upbringing in the sense that, you know, I wasn't set out to make these big, these proper movies at first. It was just more about filming stuff with your friend and then friends and then getting everyone together and making sure that you watched it together. And that was kind of the enjoyment of it, the communal aspect of it, I think. Oh, it's great doing that. I remember doing similar myself and you were saying about the VHS to VHS editing. And if you got those button presses wrong and, you you know, the the, the edit with the picture would drop out and you'd go, oh, oh yeah. shit, and you'd have to rewind it and you'd have to start again. And Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. There was yeah, there was no like oh I can I can fix this. It was okay. Got to restart yeah. this whole process. <laughs> oh yeah, and then when you know all this digital non-linear editing comes in, it's oh my god, this is incredible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But, yeah. What's some of your favorite memories from the you know the the really early stuff that you did then? Oh, have you, have you got any favorite like scenes or shots? You know, there's always things that go wrong that you know are maybe not funny yeah. at the time, but good to look back on. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, I, I did um, the last snowboard video I did, or like our own buddy skateboard video I did was just out of college. And, um, I told my friends, I'm like, okay, this is the last one we were going to do. Uh, and everyone's like, yeah, right. No way. But I knew we were kind of getting to the point where it was getting difficult, more difficult to bring, get everyone out, out to film, film their sections and stuff that we would do. Uh, so I made the last one and I, this is the one time I included interviews where I got them, everyone to talk about like what's been special to them about making these together. And I included sections that you wouldn't normally include like a vacation spot that we all go to together. And I filmed us there and stuff. So the last one was kind of turned into this really great kind of time capsule of who we were at the time. And every now and then, like if I don't know someone, or if I'm just meeting someone, I'm like, you want to get a sense of who I was growing up? This is what I show you. <laughs> because it's a perfect example of the 20, 20 to 23-year-old me. Um, and it's a really good memory to, that I have. Of, you know, everyone's kind of gotten married and off having kids and stuff now. This is kind of that one thing that we all got that to look back on and go, oh, yeah, this is what life used to be like for us. And stuff. <laughs> that, that's kind of the, that's kind of my favorite experience. And I actually shot some 16 mil film for that, that was my dip in the toes. I had bought an old um, Russian, um, like manual crank, sixteen mil camera off eBay. It was basically made from tank parts, and I shot <laughs> my first short ends on that. Um, and that was kind of my first dip in the water to film. That kind of led me down the road to shooting my first feature on on film as well. So that one probably has the best memories for me. Oh, lovely! It is great looking back on that stuff. Yeah. And like you said, it leads it leads you on. Um, well, let's talk about yesterday, which I'll okay. admit I haven't seen yesterday. I mean, I I own, and like I said, good. I own. <laughs> is, is that good? <laughs> um, it's the you know, like I said, that was written when I was nineteen and shot when I was twenty one, actually. So I did so that even doing that uh, skate video was before that then. But yeah, I shot that at twenty one, and I don't think your ideas are the best or your worldviews are the best at 21. You try, but there's not enough experience there unless you're some wonder kid that I'm definitely not. So I look back on that now and all you see is like, oh, that's written by a very immature young man. <laughs> Go on, tell me and the listeners, give us a short synopsis then of yesterday. Okay. it's When I was writing it, it was basically 
a combination of Paul Haggis's crash mixed with the George Romero zombie movie. So it's a bunch of vignettes of these people separate throughout a city uh, who didn't know each other as a zombie outbreak uh, occurs. And it's kind of following them in these little little separate storylines where they all finally eventually connect together and end up agreeing to go uh, leave the city and camp in the woods to see if they can survive away from where all the shit's happening. But of course, any good zombie movie, or at least what I got from Romero's zombie movies, it's not the zombies you gotta fear, but the what that brings out in people in those mm-hmm. circumstances. And yeah. So that's what it, that's what I tried to make out of that. And uh, I had gotten my first gig in what I thought because I always wanted to be an editor. That's what I learned in my. Um, First year, first year out of high school, actually, I went to film school, um, and I was not. And all I had done prior to that was skateboard movies. And then it was my first experience kind of learning to do narrative uh, projects. As an, And I remember everyone, the, the teacher in the first day of class said, okay, how many of you want to be a director? And so everyone puts their hand up, and he goes, well, <laughs> maybe one of you. And so I took that actually as a sign. I'm like, well, I really enjoy editing, and I don't think many people want to do that. So I'm just going to hedge my bets and just focus on the editing aspect. So that whole year, all I did was focus on my editing skills and edit everyone else's projects. And I had a great time doing that, but the program was really poorly structured at the time. I was going through some changes, and I just felt like my money was getting wasted. Um, and so, and I also wanted to be able to talk about stuff other than movies. So I left the program <laughs> after the first year and transferred. Uh, and started getting a degree. Uh, my intention was to get a degree in philosophy uh, from UB, from University of British Columbia, which is kind of like our big university out here. But I said, you know what, I'll give them that film school, one kick in the can. So I applied to that film school, and I told my cousin cheekily that if I don't get in, I'm going to spend my tuition on making a movie this summer. And I got, lo and behold, I got denied from that film program. And so, I, and my cousin just came up, the same one who I used to shoot the VHS movies with. He said, well, I guess we're shooting a movie this summer. <laughs> and I hadn't even had a script yet. So I was like, oh, shit, I guess, <laughs> I guess he took that for serious. And so that was the genesis of how that all started. So I had this idea percolating in my head. I love Romero and I want it to kind of be my love letter to the old slow moving zombies because at the time all it was was uh the 28 days later kind of fast running stuff which i like but that's kind of not i felt it just was more creepy when it was the slow like this is all before walking dead kind of brought it all back and so that was kind of that was kind of the start and i was working for um a post house at the time that no longer is in business and i thought that as soon as i got that job i was like perfect i've made it i mean i'll be an editor in no time but it's completely not the way you go about being an editor. It was basically I was the guy that was transferring the dailies for Battlestar Galactica by night <laughs> that I would give to the editor by morning. <laughs> and so, but they were like completely separate entities. So there was no way to transfer from one to the other. So while I was working there, though, they still had their old film uh, uh, developing station, which was not being used at all. And so I made sure to ask them. I was like, look, if I shoot some film, would I be able to get some discounts from you guys? And they're like, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll do it for free. I don't think they thought that I had a feature in mind. And so 
that's what made us shoot on film because I was like, well, what is the chances that we're going to get an opportunity like this again? Yeah. Kodak is willing to give us a student discount. So it, was, it, it kind of made sense to us to, to just try it and see what happened. And uh, Primer, I think, had just came out and I said, well, if they can do it or if, if Shane Carruth can do it for seven grand, then I might as well try it and see what happens. And so I remember reading the uh, – Robert Rodriguez is Rebel Without a Crew book that summer just to get my head wrapped around it before we went went to camera. <laughs> That's a great book. That is a really good it, book. Too. It is really good. It's kind of like a completely different context now because I feel like that's what everyone does. It's almost like <laughs> – it's funny because it's almost like now you don't want to tell people that you did it low budget because that's not like that's not like <laughs> an interesting story anymore. <laughs> I am going to have to hunt this out, you know. I'm going to have to watch it because I love Romero stuff. I love, you know, I love zombie movies. So I'm, I'm going to have to hunt it out. I really am. <laughs> I think you can get it on on Amazon. I was lucky. Actually, I was lucky earlier, and I did, I did see it on Amazon. So and it okay. is, it is in my basket as well. So, okay, great, great. Yeah, well, you can tell me afterwards what do you think because it's, uh, it's a, it's, it's a tough one to sit through. <laughs> I will let you know. I, I, as an editor now, like as a proper editor now, I look back and I'm like, ooh, I could make some trims here, man. <laughs> yeah, let's let's spend a few minutes. Let's talk about your editing as well, because you know you've you've worked on some big movies. You've worked on all types of stuff. I mean, let's the A Team, a couple of Twilight movies, uh, yeah, <laughs> the, the the latest War for the Planet of the Apes, as well as Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Um, yeah. Um, you just wanted me to give the spiel about how that all Yeah, out? yeah, yeah. I'd love to know. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I shot. I, I did yesterday, finished yesterday, and then over the next three years, we basically spent kind of slapping that together, editing by nights while I kept working at this post house. Um, and that was – I did that one on Final Cut. Um, and then – about by the end of that, when it was about finished, I remember saying, I was like, okay, well, this post house, I'm sick of working three years of straight night shifts, and I need to try to figure out a way that I can get into a proper editing room. And I would be volunteering on uh, as a PA on sets sometimes here and there, uh, just to try and see if I could get myself into that, into the proper editing world. Um, even though I knew set wasn't the place to be, but I was on set one day helping move boxes for the edit, and it turned out I was like, moving boxes for the editing department. And one of the guys there was an assistant editor at the time. Actually, no, sorry, he was the editing PA, so he was the runner who'd get coffee and lunches and stuff. And at the time, I remember I had I just said it out loud to him. I was like, "Hey, man, how do I get to your spot?" And he's like, "Oh, well, I mean," he's like, "You don't like being on set?" I'm like, "No, that's I'm only here to try and meet you guys." And he's like, "Oh, cool. Well." Um, how about you give me your email and if I ever hear of a job opening, I'll let you know. Um, and so I gave him my info and I mean, that guy had, didn't know me, had no business needing to recommend me for a gig. But I think like six months later, I got an email out of the blue and it was because he couldn't take a job and he said he had given uh, these guys my details and so i remember talking to them uh and they're like well we'll be honest it's down to you and another guy that he recommended as well who's done the job before uh and we're looking probably to go with him and so i was like well i get that too. but it turns out that that guy moved back to toronto and so the only option they had was me um and the only reason they took me was because the only experience that i did have was that i knew how to organize the footage because I used to do that in my night gig that would hand it to the job that I was taking right. over. Okay. And so it was one of those situations where, you know, you kind of 
you work you work hard enough to put yourself in a position to get lucky and I got very lucky that that guy decided to move back to Toronto and I got lucky that the other the other guy who couldn't take the job remembered my name and my email and put it forward and so that gig was for the editing PA on Cabin in the Woods oh it's a great um, movie too yeah so that was my first ever experience in the editing room and that was with an editor named Lisa Lassick who then at the time that she was Joss Wheaton's guy and Joss Wheaton was kind of like the producer on this so that he that they and then of course they went on to do the Avengers and stuff like that um but yeah that was my first experience and then as soon as I finished that movie that movie got that they got MGM went under I think who was originally producers or whatever where they went into hibernation and that movie got shelved for a couple of years mm-hmm. but I got recommended on to because of that movie I got recommended on to a movie called Marmaduke that was by 20th Century Fox and then 20th Century Fox I got along well with their post supervisor and he brought me right on to A-Team after that. And then it was kind of just a string of 20th Century Fox movies for a while. Um, where finally, uh, I can't remember what was the last one I did with them before I said, you know what, I need to go off and shoot another movie. It was because in between doing these gigs, I was that was right around the time that yesterday kind of took off in the festival circuit as well. Yeah. And so I'd be trying to travel to festivals while still working and you know it's especially when you're on those big studio movies you kind of don't get any days off so it kind of became difficult to do both these things and then people started asking what was the next movie i was gonna do and so i told fox i was like look i'm gonna take uh take, i'm gonna say no to this next show and i think it was the first uh planet of the apes reboot uh i said no no i can't i can't do it i i want to i want to try and shoot my next movie and so that's when i shot mona me but then after that, I came back, and it's like it's weird though because it's like you say no, and then someone else takes your spot, and then they're the person that gets called for the very next yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. And so after I'd shot Monami and I needed to go back to work and make some money, uh, they had started using this next guy, and so I had to kind of I was like, oh no, what have I done? I've kind of ruined my spot. So I went back to doing smaller movies, which was uh, the Wimpy Kid series at the time. Um, but that turned out to be a blessing in disguise because my post super is like, Hey, why aren't we hiring you as our assistant editor yet in town? And I said, well, the union's here. They're really strange. It's like a catch 22. You need 60 days on a union shoot to get in the union, but to get those 60 days, you need to be in the union. So it's kind of like this really weird closed loop. (laughs) (laughs) And, and so he's like, ah, you know what, why don't we just start putting you as, down you, you're still our PA but we'll put you down as our assistant editor because uh, we're, you're, you're also helping at this point I was also they were trusting me enough that I was helping import the footage into the system and kind of uh, organize stuff a little bit there which is kind of what you do when you're hungry enough you just keep asking like hey if there's anything I can do to help jump on the systems to get some experience yeah. uh, I'd do that and so that's kind of started happening and then about 40 days in the union found out and they're like well you can't do that if you're going to call someone an assistant editor you need to hire one of our unemployed assistant editors that we've already got in the union and then again put yourself in a position to get lucky fox basically just went to bat for me against the union and said okay well give us the whole list and we'll interview all of them and say how this isn't the right fit and they kind of just basically put their foot down and said this is you can't tell us who we can and cannot hire this is a guy that's worked for us for nearly four years now uh and so fox went to bat for me on that one and I got my days, and that's what got me into the union for uh, 
I think the second Wimpy Kid or the final Wimpy Kid after there was my first assistant editor gig. Uh, and that's kind of the funny thing is it's like all all the things I was worried about. Oh, I took myself out of the running for all these other gigs. I think if I was still on the bigger studio movies, I wouldn't they wouldn't have been able to pull this stuff because it was yeah. would have been too big. So it's kind of like it's one of those things where it's always every time I've been stressed out about making a decision, a life decision like that, kind of all seems to work out in the end and so those those that's kind of been that turned out to be my career just jumping from those and then i worked my way back up to doing bigger uh studios as, uh, as the assistant editor movies uh and, and then just got very lucky that um eventually did when spielberg came to town with the bfg that i uh, of there's they only take one assistant editor in town in the, all of vancouver and there's a bunch of them uh and that i was the one that got that gig and that kind of that kind of was a special experience in its own. So wow. it's slowly working your way up in that field. <laughs> that's that's incredible. But it, I mean, for me, that just shows your love and, and your commitment as a filmmaker as well. That you, you you could have taken the easy route and just stayed as you were, but you wanted you know you wanted to make one of me. So you, you pulled out mm-hmm. the editing, you did that, and then you got back into the editing, and then yeah. the, you got even further with the editing because of that decision. I mean, that's that's just a great story. And like you said, you know, with a lot of people face these decisions in life, don't they? And it's and too many people, I think, take the easy route when, you know, sometimes yeah. you to make that leap. You just don't know what's going to happen, do you? Yeah. Well, that reminds me too. Is I don't. I didn't even make it the first one yesterday as like an excuse to be a director. I did it because I no one was giving me any work as an editor, and I was like, well, I'll just shoot something so I have something to edit. <laughs> I just, I distinctly remember that now. Like it wasn't like I was like I never really wanted to do this as a director it just so happened that i'm a bit i found out i was a bit of a control freak and i preferred like i knew at least (laughs) what i was getting in the editing room so i'd rather be the one on set getting it (laughs) and that kind of it just so happened that you know when i wasn't on one of the studio movies you'd get four months off and i just i'm a busy body and i want to keep working so you just well let's go shoot this let's go shoot that and it kind of just i got lucky in the sense that both of these avenues kind of as fractured enough that they've kind of continued on their own volition at this point have you have you ever got like really excited when you've been editing something you know speaking as a cinephile myself who loves movies and everybody that listens to this show loves you know loves movies and cinema and have you ever got like footage in front of you that's brand new and has genuinely got you excited you know what it's the always the opposite it's really ev- oh wow every single time you get the footage and it's always the worst it's going to look <laughs> like you can tell you're like, Oh, that's a cool shot. Like, I hope I can edit, put that in or that's going to look, I hope that that looks good in the movie, but I've never, I'm I, maybe it's just the eternal pessimist in me, <laughs> but it's the, the worst part of editing is the first day that you get the footage because it's all the mistakes are in there. Uh, cause for me anyway, my, my only goal, I like, I didn't formally train as an editor in school. I kind of just did. I don't. I haven't read any books. I like you know Walter Murch has got the. I think it's in the blink of an eye, which I still have on my shelf, but I've never actually read. But I know there's all these rules that you're supposed to follow. But to me, editing is always about minimizing the mistakes yeah. that the audience notices that will take them out of the story. And that's always my main focus. And so whenever I sit down with the footage in front of me. The first thing I do is I'm just looking at all this these mistakes going, oh no, oh no. Like 
and it's either and it's either and the worst part is it's sometimes it's my mistakes that I made on set too. So it's like a double kick in the teeth. Um, I mean, it's a little easier on the bigger on the studio shows where you're the assistant editor and I'm not directly responsible for the footage. Uh, where you can be like, oh, that's a cool shot. That'll I bet that'll cut in nicely here, or I could imagine this turning into a cool scene. But when you actually when when you get to the editor position and your jobs to actually put it together yeah it's usually a big sense of dread that you start with <laughs> it must be such a full you know fulfilling feeling at the end once it's all together though and then do you, do you go to the cinema and watch them as well afterwards I mean, because you must have seen this footage so many times as well i don't sit through my own movies for the most part uh i used to have like no pro- it's funny i used to have no problem with public speaking i didn't have any anxiety and then the second I finished yesterday and we threw it on the big screen, everything hit me all at once. It was like, I, I now hate speaking in public. I get bad anxiety and it's, I don't know, something in me has changed where it's like, oh, okay, now uh, there's something that's come out of my brain that I've written, that I've <laughs> taken personal experiences from, that is now up on a giant 40-foot screen for strangers to, to judge um and it's very naked feeling it's very strange (laughs) and so i usually try to avoid it not to mention that i've seen it too many times as well um i mean i know that i I usually time it so that i can enter the theater on times that i know will get like either a big laugh or something but it's it's the constant silent moments that are just (laughs) like nails on a chalkboard because you don't know whether people are silent because they're enjoying it or because they think it's a piece of shit so (laughs) Well, one that most definitely isn't a piece of shit is Monami. Like I said, I, I, I watched it I, again. I think it's probably like my fourth viewing of it, and I watched it a couple oh. of hours ago. Um, and I really, I, I love that movie. I really do. And I'm not just saying it. I say this to a lot of people that come on the show. I'm not just saying it because you know you're on the show with me. I do love that movie. Um, Thank you. And so, of course, for the listeners, for anybody listening to this that hasn't seen it, what's Monami about? Uh, it's kind of, it's the pitches all was always, if I recall now, now I got to go back to my festival days with that one. Uh, <laughs> it was, it was Fargo meets dumb and dumber. So it's two friends, uh, kidnap their boss's daughter and hold her for ransom. And then everything goes horribly wrong, but it was always done in this, um, tongue in cheek style where, you know, you're following the, the villains of the story, but it's there relationship with each other and their ineptness that kind of keeps you not I don't I guess not sympathizing with them might be the wrong word but you know (laughs) keeps you keeps you with with them because that was my original goal with that movie I was like you know what I want to see a movie where you just follow the bad guy the whole time and then I realized (laughs) in making that that it can be a pretty difficult challenge because if people don't like someone they're going to check out pretty quickly (laughs) um so I took that on as my challenge with that one um and that was kind of that was the genesis of of, of Monami. Yeah, it works as well because the two characters that you follow are li- they are likable despite what they're doing. You can't yeah. help but like them. Well, I, and I think I think a lot of what I tried to do is inject again a lot of was I injected a lot of very personal things that were going on uh, in my life at the time. Um, all of my friends at the time, I had just come off of a pretty substantial breakup after four and a half years all of my friends were getting married engaged and I felt like I was kind of being left in the dust and so a lot of Cal's concerns with his best friend Teddy about him moving away and getting 
their, their friendship being fractured by his wife were very real feelings that I was having with a lot of my friends at the time. And, you know, there's no better therapy than kind of just writing that stuff out. Um, <laughs> I try to do that with all of my stuff too, you know, like there, there's always a good concept, but then I was like, well, what's my personal connection to this? And that's kind of, that was kind of the key for me is that, that friendship that I've felt like I was losing a lot of those in real life. And, you know, there's a certain desperation that comes with that too. <laughs> Speaking of friendship, and this this will make uh, more sense to people that were at the Q and A with you at Grimfest. Uh, mm -hmm. Mike Kovac, who was, of course is in Monomy and is in Fake Blood, uh, yeah, has he got married yet? I know you mentioned he was getting married. He has did, yeah, he got married. What what day is? Yeah, he got married last Saturday. How did that yeah. go? Was, was it okay? It was a really really fun wedding, actually. There, uh, his his wife is also a you know a, a performer, a, a musical theater person. So it was a they know a lot of people that like to have a good time. So it was a it was a pretty fun experience. <laughs> That's good to hear. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So he, he's married though, and I was I was invited back, so that's good. That's good. When we get to the fake blood talk, where people will know more of what we've just been talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, Mother Me as well. I'm right in saying it was filmed in about 17 days. Yes, it was. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's some going to do that. Yeah, it was. Well, and that's the thing is, it was so well. I thought it would be easy because we we're not shooting on film anymore. And I go, oh, we just got we'll get two cameras and. I, seven d's um and we just went to town shooting that one in and around my folks place at the time which was where we thought most of it was set and then shooting all the rest of the stuff um i mean it's always a hustle i feel like even if you have more days you'll find a ways to to fill the time but that was probably about just just a little less than the right amount for that movie but uh that it was that one was fun actually well not fun they're never fun on set i really <laughs> I, I realized that as i said i being on set, as much as I enjoy directing and interacting with the actors and the crew, being on set is my least favorite time. It's like uh, it's like being the host of a party. You're not the one that has any fun. <laughs> the thing yeah. is, there's a certain scene in Mon Ami uh, that is like the genesis for fake blood as well, which you know we, we will get in on too. Um, yeah. Which I always find quite funny. Since listening to that Q and A with you and, and watching Fake Blood. Monomy yeah. has taken on it like a, a a totally different layer to me now, especially the scene <laughs> in the hardware store where they're picking they're picking out you know what, what tools can we use you know to dismember this woman. <laughs> it's like yeah. oh okay, yeah, yeah. No, um, I, I can't even remember why that scene why I wrote that, but I feel like it was an important element to me because you see in all the movies, uh, you know, there's definitely movies where dismemberance happens. I was like, well, I want to see the shopping of that. I want to see like what, what how would you how would you decide what tools you'd use especially if you don't know what the hell you're doing and so on it felt that felt like the right level of comedy to me at the time and oh, then yeah. yeah that took on that took on a bit of a different meaning when someone else either found it funny or i still i'm not sure i have no idea it, it, i love it it's got the added like comedy layer that they shop at the hardware store where they, yeah, work, where they work so they can well, get they the, want discount. the discount <laughs> yeah, and, and that's another thing i actually had did work at uh, uh I, I worked at canadian tire for a little bit and so a lot of my experiences interacting with customers was directly torn from that and but the employee discount was a big deal uh, that, that was a very big deal my dad loved it as soon as he found out because he's a home a handyman and he, as soon as he found out i worked at home or at, at canadian tire he was he was he was all, all always bugging me to go down there <laughs> 
I would look at somebody different now after watching that. You know, anybody that was buying like nail guns or big yeah. axes or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. basically if you're getting multiple things like that. Yeah, if you're getting a circular saw and you know another kind of uh, like a saw, then it's like, well, why do you need two? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and one other thing I want to ask as well, like I said, you know, I bought it on DVD over here, but it's called Frenemies over here on DVD. Is there any particular reason for that? It was actually uh, Sim and Rachel from Grimfest after the screening of Monomy there. I guess it went, I, unfortunately, I couldn't make it then, uh, which it really bums me out after just coming from Grimfest this time and having such an awesome time. Um, that they emailed me afterwards and said this movie went went over really well and we'd like to kind of help you uh, see if we can get it out distributed over here and so they set it up with a company I believe I don't know if they're around anymore called Warwick Mm -hmm. Uh, and then yeah they helped basically get that all set up just because they love the movie and I guess and that's my bad I'm really bad with titles even yesterday it sounds like a crappy title but Monami in hindsight, I probably should have named it something different so that doesn't people don't just th- assume it's a French movie. Um, <laughs> but so they they are like, oh, do you mind if we change the title? I'm like, man, you guys are the experts. I'll let you guys decide. And Frenemies was the one that they came up with, and I said, sure, whatever gets it on shelves. I don't. I wasn't really too concerned about it, uh, and that's that's why that name got changed. Hmm. I would. I love the artwork, though. It's the, it's the yellow case, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. With with you know the two main leads with the the hazmat suits on, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I feel like that's an uh, that's a much that's a very compelling one. I feel like I would pick that up if I saw that in a blockbuster, which does not exist anymore. But <laughs> yeah, I would. I definitely encourage everybody listening to uh, to go and pick it up because it's it's well worth buying, definitely. I don't, I yeah, mean, that was that was. I, I gotta say, that was the one where you're shooting. That where I was like, "What the fuck are we making?" <laughs> yeah. And yeah, you could tell from the crew. You can always tell. Just the crew is also like, "What? What is this piece of shit?" Like, I don't think anyone had any inkling that that would turn into a half decent movie. But that's I, in hindsight, I always take those as signs that you know maybe you're you're trying to make something fresh or a little bit different that people haven't seen. Because I feel like that's the biggest challenge we have now. Is everyone's making movies, and the important thing is like, okay, well, what haven't people seen here, yeah. or how can I show it a little bit differently? Um, and I've, I'm just lucky that that one kind of worked out in the way that it did. But I remember distinctly thinking on set, after speaking to a couple of the crew members, going like, whoa, is this going to be a giant piece of crap that was <laughs> is going to just waste everyone's time? No, like I said, it's got everything. You know, it's you laugh, you know, all the way through. There's there's comedy in it. There's scares in it. It's got the you know, it's got the the blood and the splatter that you know a lot of people love. Uh, you don't you don't know what's going to happen next. You don't know what these characters are going to do, and you can relate to the characters. And like you said, despite the two leads being the bad guys in it, you can't help mm-hmm. but love them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, they're almost so inept that it's not their fault. Yeah. <laughs> you just feel sorry for them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, yeah, that was it's. A, I remember that my analogy for that movie was it's meant to be a runaway train, and you're just along for the ride. <laughs> now I'm intrigued by your next movie because this is another one that I haven't seen yet, and it's Desolate. Okay. Yeah, no, because now I read a few things about it. Where now is this right? Where there was no crew, there was no script. Yeah, there's literally me uh, and the actors, and that was it. And again, that was done because you know. 
just after Monami, unfortunately, like Monami was a situation where, you know, you tried to do everything as professional as you can, but it just ended up being too many people on set and turns into a bit of a babysitting uh, rather than, you know, just the essential people that want to be there and have a good time and try to do something creative together. And it was getting around the time where like the digital revolution was just completely taking over. And I remember saying, I'm like, we got to start downsizing because this is the way things are going. It's, you need less people that can wear many hats. And so that was kind of my like kickback to see, you know, well, what could be done? And I just come off of a studio film and I had a couple months free uh, this was right around the Olympics, actually, yeah, so 2010. And I just said, I was like, I want to try something completely different. I don't want to write the movie. I got an outline. My friend also is like, well, you know what? I want to do acting, but I don't think anyone's going to take me serious to give it a whirl. I was like, well, I'll do it if you're willing to try this. <laughs> um, and that was kind of just, you know, again, I don't like sitting on my hands waiting for stuff to happen. There's nothing bad that can happen by going out and picking up a camera, I felt I use kind of I use all these things as an excuse to try and figure out what not to do on the next one, and so yeah, that was kind of my first experiment in doing Im- improvisation, but not in a funny way. M- more in just can you build a story in this very uh, loose way? And uh, the Duplass brothers were a big influence on me earlier too. And I was like, well, they don't seem to give a shit. They'll just go out and shoot whatever <laughs> they want. And so I tried to just follow, take their lead on that one. And then uh, we didn't get everything that we wanted because, you know, you're shooting a movie and making it up as you go. You go and start getting into the editing room. And you're like, oh, you know what? We need to make some changes here. And so we kind of like for a couple of years just would pick up a Camry every couple of weekends or usually once a month and just kind of make tweaks to the story as we went along. And that's kind of that's kind of how that movie came about. <laughs> so in total, how long did it take from start to finish to put together? Uh, if it came out in 2013, I think so. It was probably about three years. Wow. Yeah, I've got another one that I've been doing for the last three years as well that I'm on weekends uh, <laughs> that I've yet to release, but it's it's getting closer. <laughs> <laughs> is that is that going to get beat desolate for the three year time scale? Is it going to be a little bit longer? You think? Uh, well, this this one specifically, I made a point of saying, you know, I try to say this on all of them. It's not the result. It's the process. Yeah. And so as long as it doesn't completely die and waste everyone who helped out on his time, <laughs> it, it, it'll take as long as it needs because I can only do so much as an editor at one time anyway. Um, and the problem is it's been getting so busy up here in Vancouver, too. Well, I'm sure it's getting busy everywhere just with movies in general. Like I don't have those four month breaks anymore to catch up on things it's kind of been three years steady i think i went from i went from point break to war for the to uh, no point break to the bfg to war for the planet of the apes like back to back to back which is basically two years straight working 14 plus hour days wow uh, and so by the end of that, you're so fried, you can't do any decent work anyway. So it's just, it's even getting busy. <laughs> so that one will take the time it needs to. <laughs> yeah. It must and be it's good all, though. You need to have things all, on the back burner all the time yeah, as well. Yeah, it's all just experimenting. Yeah. Right? There's a, there's things I do on those ones that I know either won't work or may not work that will inform my decisions on the proper, uh, organized ones mm-hmm. down the road as well. <laughs> so... <laughs> Well, before we yeah. get to before we get to I'll make sure, sorry, sorry I'll make sure to I'll make sure to give you a copy of this or find you a copy because you can oh. get that on the Canadian Amazon, I think. Oh, I would love the yeah, I would love to watch it. I really would because <laughs> I looked on the UK one, I couldn't find it anywhere. 
Yeah. Are you guys able to order from the Canadian Amazon? You, well, you should be able to, yeah. But I can't see why not. I've ordered from different European ones and from yeah. the American I'll find one. You a, I'll find you a link. Send me a link and I'll pick it up, definitely. All right. Sounds good. Because, yeah, I'm proud of that one for what it is. I mean, it's again, it's very different uh, from Mon Ami, which is kind of, was kind of the point. But I'll be curious to see what you think. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> I, I will. Of course I'll let you know. I will too. Yeah. Um, yeah, before we go into Fake Blood, tell me a little bit about the short film, um, What Doesn't Kill You. Okay. So, yeah, right around the time that Mon Ami was coming out, um, uh, and it was a very different festival experience from yesterday, because yesterday was, it's kind of funny, it was like yesterday the festivals, I feel like the reason that caught a little bit of fire, because it was, the story was, you know, look at these 21-year-olds that made a movie on film on five different broken cameras. And it's kind of, it was kind of just more like this interesting war story about making a movie on film as the digital age was coming up. Uh, whereas Mon Ami was kind of that people are like, Oh, this is their follow-up. Uh, and it's way different. And, <laughs> you know, it was, the, but it caught, it was also really good because we got, we we're just getting these really great reviews from everyone. And it kind of just, it was a really good time to be considered the director of that movie. And we have a thing in Canada called the Canadian Film Centre, which is kind of like the Canadian version of the Sundance Labs, okay, yeah. where they, they basically take five people every year uh, from different disciplines. So they'll take five directors, five writers, five editors, uh, five uh, – what else do they take? Five producers. Uh, and then you're basically – shipped to Toronto where you get to just focus on your stuff. Um, and they'll try to they basically try to incubate you for uh, another feature film. And the funny thing is, even though I've done all these little no budget ones that have been done for about 10 grand and even desolate's case, I think I did that for three grand. Uh, you know, in the eyes of the professional industry here in Canada, I had never made a proper feature film before. Um, just because of their old, you know, their old logic is like, well, it's not, it doesn't really count until you're getting paid and you got a big <laughs> budget and studio, which is, it's just, it's so backwards yeah. now. Like, so not that how it is anymore. You make a feature, if it screens in a theater, you've made a feature. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, so, um, that was kind of my excuse to try to see if I could legitimize myself in the eyes of the industry. Um, I got lucky enough to be one of the five picked. And so that was the first time in Toronto where the eyes of the industry kind of are like, oh, this goofy kid who's making these splatter flicks on his own, he's 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 legit. So it was kind of like I needed that as the seal of approval. Yeah. And the whole time I had been developing this feature um, uh, that took that by the end of the program, they're like, well, we'll give you money to make a short uh, as your calling card. And so I basically plucked a scene from that feature and that's what became what doesn't kill you uh and since that was my first proper time the budget on that short was triple what mon Ami was wow. and so i was like well well this is going to be no problem now and i i constantly try to tell all the funding agencies and stuff that actually are here i was like you guys look down upon the people that are making these no budget movies but imagine what they're going to do once they get a budget yeah yeah and so i basically used every all of that money to just make this kick-ass short that I don't think, you know, that doesn't, wouldn't feel like a much like a short. Um, and I got lucky that that got picked by the Toronto International Film Festival. I got runner-up best short there. And I feel like that whole process kind of just got me to the finally, like, oh, 
yeah, so we need to start taking these genre these genre kids a little more seriously, because <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a there's a very real con- not even a concern there's a there's a big truth to it that you know anyone that likes making and watching genre and horror movies that we're kind of considered bit, bit second class when it comes to comes to the art form I feel, and it's constantly about us saying you know it's we're putting in a lot of the human condition in there, which just, we also like to entertain as well. Yeah. And you're making some, you're making some great points as well. The, you know, the way that the whole, the whole world has changed as far as filmmaking goes. It's not just all about multi-million dollar budgets and all the big film studios, you know, now with yeah. everybody's got access you do, to, you can film in HD, you can film in 4k, you can edit it yeah. at home. You can, you can get it online and for the world to view within, you know, a really yeah. short amount of time it's not just big budget big studio stuff anymore and and a lot of the time it's it's the independent filmmakers that are making the better the better product you know that's yeah. more, you know and it's it's yeah. unfortunate that a lot of people are just too they're just too locked in to go to the local multiplex and see the local big you know the next big blockbuster um mm. And instead of like searching out for you know the the really good stuff that you know people like yourself are making, thank you. Yeah, no, it's 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 a strange. It's funny because it's even changing like different how it was five years ago, where you know before there was there's still those thirty million dollar movies. Those don't even exist anymore. It's either a hundred million dollar mm-hmm. movies now, or it's one million and under. <laughs> <laughs> it's those are the those are the two options that you can seek out and find now. I feel that's there's crazy. Those, the $30 million movie doesn't really exist anymore. Not even the $10 million movie, which are, were usually the best ones. Like Pulp Fiction was a $10 million yeah, movie. Yeah. Those ones do not exist anymore. <laughs> I mean, I think they're starting to make a little bit of a comeback. But it's, it's like the Blumhouse seems to have it figured out. It's like $2 million to like $5 million. And then we'll just make a bit of a profit on each of these and we'll move forward doing that. Uh, mm. But, you know, it's such a weird, weird industry right now. Oh, yeah. And I've – people have constantly said – you know, there's that whole argument too. It's like, yeah, well, not everyone should be able to make a movie. You know, we're flooding the marketplace and stuff like that. And I used to think about like that way, but then I feel like that came from more of a place of jealousy as to why my stuff wasn't getting more noticed. <laughs> and I've now just settled on the fact of, you know, film – making movies is an art form. And it's no different from people that paint. And, you know, there's 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 the tools and utensils for everyone to paint and draw and write all over the world. But no one's complaining like, oh, there's too many paintings out there. My stuff's not getting seen. It's <laughs> like you got the work. The work just has to be good enough to rise above. And that's all on, that's on us to just to try yeah. that. Yeah, definitely. Most definitely. I totally agree with you. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned you mentioned Pulp Fiction. I mean, that's a good segue to get us into Fake Blood because I am going to bring up Pulp Fiction uh, oh. when we when we chat about Fake Blood as well. Um, All right. Again, I'll like take I said, whatever connection you're going to make. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I was lucky enough to watch Fake Blood at Grimfest. Like I said, I I loved it. Um, so the first thing, of course, is you know tell the listeners what is what is Fake Blood. What is it about? Well, um, for the for the listeners that heard us talking about. Monomy. It's basically, um, yeah. In that, in Monomy, we had our two inept criminals shopping for tools that they would use to chop up a corpse. Um, and then after that movie came out, we did the festival circuit. I got an email 
from a fan who, which I, my email is very accessible. We, we were the ones shipping the DVDs for Monami ourselves. Um, and I think after he bought it, he just responded with, Hey, like, congratulations, really love the movie. Thanks very much. And my response, I always try to make a personal response and say the same thing. It's thank you very much for the support. Tell your friends. And then he followed up with, well, we made a fan video. And then I clicked on the video and it was him and his friend walking through a hardware store telling me what tools they would use to chop up a corpse. (laughs) Yeah. And the weird thing is it was either done so perfectly toned that I couldn't tell whether it was a dark joke or not, but it basically was a holy shit moment for me being like, Oh, I'm not going to respond to this. Uh, and Mike Kovac is no longer going to put his return address on the DVDs <laughs> that we send out because I, that's the thing is I don't I didn't even know even if it was a joke I still don't know what to say to that like I don't know I wouldn't have been like that's not funny uh, it was just it, yeah it was a very vexing moment yeah uh, and prior to that I mean I think if I don't know do you, do you do you are you just a movie lover you would make 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 projects yourself as well yeah no I make projects as well yeah. That's awesome. See, and that's the thing is, I feel like it's anyone that makes bloody or or any any put any sort of violence. There's something in the back of the head that says, you know, what am I? Is is am I affecting people in a negative way? There's mm-hmm. something in the back of your head, and if not, then you're you're just you're too cool for me. Like I can't I like I can't turn that part of my brain off because we should all know that we're affecting people on some level, or hope that we are. <laughs> And that just kind of exacerbated my concerns about what I was putting on screen. And that kind of just led us down the the dark road to figure out what our responsibility was if we had one. So that's that's kind of the genesis of, of fake blood. See, and this, this is something I want to bring up. So there was the Q&A at Grimfest, fake blood mm-hmm. had, had played. And for me, there was there was too much emphasis on the questions to you on whether it was a documentary or whether it was a mockumentary. Uh-huh. For me, the conversation piece is is the subject of the documentary, which is the, the ways in which violence is portrayed in cinema, as, uh-huh. a, as opposed to real life. The sh- I, I wanted more questions about that being thrown at you, <laughs> rather than the, the constant, is it a documentary or a mockumentary? Well, um, I feel like the audience was just shell-shocked for the most part I there. I think so, first. because, because it's... <laughs> Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, take, I mean, you brought it up as well. I mean, you sort of, you quote, well, to give an example, for people that can't quite get their heads around what it what it's like, it's this, you know, the documentary of, like you say, you get this video from this fan that's seen one of me and going, well, you know, I'd, I'd bought these this equipment to, you know, dismember people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you give some really good examples of the way that violence is portrayed in cinema using the stuff that you filmed as well as opposed to mm. real life and this is where the pulp fiction reference comes in um and, and it's, it's brilliant how you put it together because you give the shot of tim roth in not it's pulp fiction it's reservoir bloody dogs reservoir here we go yeah. sorry here we go yeah. it's a quentin oh. tarantino connection there we go yeah exactly we'll get there eventually um of Reservoir Dogs, where he's like covered in blood, and then you get the shot from um, Batman uh, Dark Knight, yeah, where he's shot in the bank, and there's no blood whatsoever, whatsoever. And you're going, okay, which, yeah, exactly. which do you believe? Which is, you know, which is going to have more effect on you? Is 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 it worse that you're seeing no blood and you're you're selling violence with like no, no effect, no cause and effect? You know, it's. 
Yeah, it's like well, that was that was my big argument towards the rating board was like, well, you're showing, you're making it seem like as if blood's the issue. If yeah. I clobber someone in the head and no blood sprays everywhere, why is that less of an issue for young people or just people in general to watch than seeing the blood splatter? Like that that doesn't make any sense. It should be the act, not the. And so not only do I think that's incorrect, I also think if you're going to show it, it has to be as gruesome and violent as possible because it's going to make you go, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to see that in real <laughs> yeah. life. You know? I, that's the way I looked at it anyway. Is, and that's what a lot of the people that we interviewed said too. It's like, you know, if you're going to show it, your responsibility is to, is to repulse people. But I feel like the censorship boards, the religious uh, communities, all those things, feel like no it's like we're trying to cram if you they, their law argument is we're trying to desensitize to people to that which you know maybe we are i have no idea i, I can't sing i can't i can't comment on that because i watch a lot of violent stuff and sure sure i get I'm, I'm, maybe i'm desensitized to some of the more benign stuff but i mean i just watched what did i just watch uh brawl on cell in cell block 99 mm-hmm the new movie from uh, the Bone Tomahawk guy. Yeah, it's Vince Vaughn, isn't it? In that, yeah. Yeah, it's so good. It's so so good. But there's some moments in that that genuinely made me feel like, oh, like. <laughs> and so I'm like, well, I'm obviously not. I'm not there yet. Actually, you know, yeah, no, you know what? Maybe it desensitizes you to movie violence. But I'll tell you, anytime I've seen someone get hurt in real life, no part of me looks at that and goes, yeah, this is normal. I should be used to this. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I mean, I've been watching. I grew up on horror movies from a really early age, yeah. And, and was watching. You know, I went through all that whole video nasty stage over here in the UK, and was watched every one of them. And it's just, yeah. um, but I, you know, I've never wanted to go out or do anything like that. I mean, there was all things to do with like Child's Play three, and they blamed that on on all different horrific acts yeah. that happened over here. Um, yeah. which again is mentioned in Fake Blood. Um, yeah. Well, we had, that's the thing is we tried to make sure that we brought up examples of things where it's either, it, it either was true that it influenced them or the media blamed them. I mean, yeah. the only one we didn't bring up really was Columbine, but that was just a whole other can of worms. We tried to, I tried to avoid any of the mass shootings just cause man, that's kind of, there's too much of that going on right now. I don't think they need to get any more spotlight. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. And again, you mentioned in this Q and A about catfish. Again, to try yeah. and get people's heads around of, you know, you've got this this documentary story that's being played out. You think that it's going to go in one direction and then all of a sudden something happens and it takes this, you know, 180 and it comes back in another direction that you're just not expecting and it gets really dark. And mm -hmm. this this happens in fake blood and that took me by surprise when when it starts Good. getting dark. It's like, <laughs> holy fuck, it's going to get it's getting dark now. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Well, that was the thing is, again, um, there's certain things, you know, it's how can we show things a little differently? And I feel between the reality and the fiction there, whatever, without getting into what's real and what's not, you know, and the number one job is to make sure that people go in expecting one thing and then they see something else while still trying to make the point of the original thing. Yeah. Um, and I felt like there's certain things that we did without getting into what they were that just kind of made sure that, you know, we were making our point, but in maybe a different way that you, that people were expecting. <laughs> and it, it went down an absolute storm at Grimfest as well. And I know was, which, um, 
was it San Francisco you were going to next? I know you're going to another film festival somewhere, weren't you? Where that was going to play? Yeah, yeah. So Grimfest, we, I mean, we screened in Calgary at the Calgary International Film Festival, but that's where a lot, like a lot of our producers and stuff came from for us. So I kind of treated that more as a friend, friendly crowd because you know it's it was a lot of the people that worked on the movie. Uh, so Grimfest was kind of my first shit test to see how this movie <laughs> would play with complete strangers. Um, and I, I'm, I'm lucky because I think it did exactly what we were hoping it would. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's one of those ones, you know, like at least people were talking about it afterwards. I don't care whether people like it or hate it, but as long as it, it, it affects them in some way, then I feel like I've done my job. Um, and so after that, now we're going to, we'd screened in Edmonton, uh, neck, or we just screened in Edmonton where it sounds like it went over really well. And then we go to San Francisco and then we're going to Portland as well. So, uh, yeah, so it's starting to, it's, it's building up its momentum right now. It's funny because all of the genre festivals where I've premiered my last movies, like yesterday and Mon Ami, I thought for sure would want to screen this, but it was, it's very strange. And I don't mind saying it. It was very strange that we had a lot of hesitation and, uh, and pushback from those festivals going like, what the hell is this? Like, we can't screen this. What are we supposed to tell (laughs) tell people this is and i said i was i I'll, i just, i mean i i can't argue with the programmers some of them are my friends and stuff it's just i guess it wasn't to their taste or the, you know maybe they just weren't seeing the big picture on how it would screen with people that don't know me on a personal level yeah um because i feel like that's who this movie's for it's for people that don't really know me uh and then you know can find out for their own what they want to about me in the movie afterwards <laughs> So yeah, you're you're put through the ringer a little bit in this one, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, but that's also a good that's also a good le- lesson learned. Is like nothing comes easy in this business. I thought for sure I'd have a lot more support from some of the festivals and programmers that I've had from my previous stuff, and it's just been it's it's like starting all over again, convincing people that I've made something that's half decent. It's funny. <laughs> oh. mm-hmm. So how can people so, see Fake Blood then? What's what's the is, is there anything in in line for more festivals? Is it going to get any release anywhere? Is it going to get um, you know for home viewing on DVD and Blu-ray? What's... It will eventually, I'm sure. I mean, we have our sales agent and a Canadian distributor. Uh, it's just really, literally, Grimfest was probably what I'll consider our first public screening. So usually the festival runs I have to take, build up a little bit of steam, and they usually take around a year. So my guess is by this time next October, <laughs> it, it will be out on on the various online platforms, depending on you know who picks it up and that kind of stuff. iTunes is kind of a guarantee. Uh, I can say that with while knocking on wood right now, but it, it'll be out there by this time next year. But right now it's so early; it's just more about we just got to build the momentum, kind of keep collecting some of the reviews and convincing people that this is the strange, odd, scary little film that you know, asks a lot of questions of the viewer. <laughs> uh, and then hopefully, hopefully some, some of the bigger distributors and festivals will start taking notice and will get us out there as well. Yeah. Well, I would, I would definitely encourage again, everybody to, to seek out fake blood and to watch it. And I, for one, will I'll definitely be buying it when it's out on DVD and Blu-ray. That's for sure. Hey, great. That's awesome. Uh, I have got one movie for you to watch as well, Rob. Hit me. Uh, what is it? Right, because when I was when I was watching Fake Blood, so yeah. Mike Kovac in it. 
Yeah. We, we love a 1989 movie called Shotgun, um, starring a guy called Stuart Chapin. Um, Shotgun? Yeah. Okay. 1989, Shotgun, Stuart Chapin. Okay. Um, we got to be very good friends with Stuart. He sadly passed away last year. There's a big story to do with That's that. Okay. Um Mike in fake blood, if ever there's going to be some some story told about Stuart Chapin's life, <laughs> and especially the shotgun part of it, Mike is going to be down for the part. So okay. if, if you watch that movie, you get back to me and let me know what you think. <laughs> Absolutely. No, you got me intrigued. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I always thought that he'd be he'd be uh, perfect for an Eric Stoltz biopic as well. <laughs> yeah, he's got that going for him too. That's for sure. Yeah, exactly. And so, as always, um, what's the best way that people can find and follow you online, Rob? Um, I mean, I'm really bad with my social networking. I have uh, an Instagram account, but it's mainly just photos I put up from set and stuff like that. I don't. Let me see. I don't even know what my name is. I'll look <laughs> That's how bad I am. Uh, let, me, let me check here. And you're uh, you're on Twitter. I know you're on Twitter. I am well. okay. So on Insta or yeah, on Instagram, I'm Rob J Grant or Rob G. I don't know which one you're supposed to be searching for. <laughs> uh, and then on uh, Twitter, what I, am I? I got to look that one up too. I think. I mean, I used to have a Facebook account, but then I got rid of that because I found that that was just bleeding sucking the life out of force out of me yeah it does that it does that very yeah. slowly doesn't it yeah and then for my yeah my twitter is at rob underscore j grant and those are my those are my two ways that you people can can find me uh i think my imdb might have my email address if people want to reach out and just say hi i'm always down for a yeah. chat as well well, of course, um, as always then i'll put those links on the website for this episode so people can get in touch with you and follow you Oh, great. Um, yeah, uh, and watch what you do and buy your stuff, of course, as they should. Um, yeah, well, as long as they're telling people to watch it, that's good enough for me. Yeah. <laughs> movies are expensive nowadays. I get it, man. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Robert. The, the, this hour, just over an hour, actually, I'm looking at the time now, has absolutely flown by. So thank you so much. It's been, it has been an absolute pleasure having a chat with you. Thank you for having me. I wish we'd gotten more into your stuff as well. I'll, I'll save that for another day then. We'll, we'll if do you want me back on. Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll do that again, definitely. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Rob. Thank you. The alarm bell, unfortunately, means it's the end of another show again. But I told you it was going to be a good one, didn't I? And I didn't let you down. It was absolutely fantastic chatting with Rob. Uh, go online, buy his movies. Uh, Mon Ami, like we said, he's readily available. I'm chasing down the other two that you uh, you heard me chat about with him in the show. Uh, keep an eye open for all the film festivals where you can watch Fake Blood as well. And so all the links that you can find and follow Rob will be on our website, of course. We can go to 60minuteswith.co.uk. There's also a contact us form on there where you can email us or you can email us direct, which is contact at 60minuteswith.co.uk. You can follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash 60minuteswith. And we're on Twitter and Instagram, which is at 60minuteswith. And yes, it's the numerical 60, not the alphabetical one. We're still running all the competitions on the Twitter, so follow there. Make sure you don't lose out. Uh, we're also going to be announcing our next interview show, which is, again, movie-related, so keep an eye on our social media for who it is that it's going to be myself, Tina, and Chris are going to be interviewing, so that's going to be a little bit different. So until the next show, 
thank you for listening and we'll see you again soon. Oh man, someone just gave us a really bad review. No way. It's hilarious. Yeah, it's hilarious. Well, not just, but in June. A hot mess with garbage sprinkles. That's awesome. <laughs> oh man, I, I wish I'd seen this while we were recording. <laughs> I can stick this bit on the end of the show. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's hilarious. A hot mess. Oh, okay. That's so good. Right, yeah, I've got the link. Uh, That's a really angry person. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm I just found myself now. wishing for the death of the main character. Okay, cool. Yeah, and that's a, that's fucking hair. Yeah, he thinks the director and the main actor is the same person. So maybe that's his problem. <laughs> yeah, and finish, finishing with the line: "This film is a hot mess with garbage sprinkles." I'll what? take it. Hey, like I said, I want either I want either I want either a strong reaction one way or the other. So I'll take that. Yeah, yeah well, that's much better than just you know a shrug of the, sh of the shoulders. That's for sure. It's true. <laughs>